Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Martini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show is coming up right next. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to our fabulous, fabulous segment that we bring the best of the best to you. Today, Rick Smith, founder and CEO of Axon, is joining me here today for a reason. And there's a reason that Rick is joining me here today. And hopefully I pronounced his company correctly. But the reason that he and I share a passion for this is that if you understand up close and personal, as I shared with you all the other day, what it was like to be walking through Central Park one day as a teenager, and watch a friend of mine be brutally killed, just shot down, just murdered right in the street. I don't think you ever forget anything like that. And yet at the same time, do we throw our hands up and say, there's nothing we could do? Or do we draw a line in the sand and get creative and innovative as what about what we can do? That's what the end of killing is about. That's what Rick is about. That's what this segment is about. Rick, it's great to have you here. Thank you for joining us here today. Thanks. I'm really excited to talk about this stuff. Pretty passionate about it. Pretty passionate is right. Uh, I'm a kid. I grew up on the streets in New York. And so from the earliest time I can remember, I grew up in a culture where dying on the streets was more normal than not dying on the streets. Fast forward to where we are here today. I want to ask you this question. How would you describe our culture in the United States today, where we are, and what the evolution of us being here is like from your perspective? So I think factually, we're living in the best times in human history from long purpose of health, longevity, violence is, is much lower than it was a few decades back. Um, I would put the caveat in though that we live in these bizarrely like divisive and angst filled times where uh, there's a lot more sort of social conflict. Um, but luckily the amount of violent conflict is declining. And, uh, you know, I see an opportunity to really continue that trend uh, in that direction. I think there's a lot of reasons behind it. Some of which is, you know, we just live in a world where there's a lot more sensors and cameras and, you know, uh, it was horrific to hear the, the, the incident you described. You know, I had two friends that were shot and killed in a parking lot in the 1990s by a businessman with a gun. And I think one of the reasons we're seeing less of that, uh, is that it's just, it's harder to imagine you could get away with it when everybody standing around has smartphones with cameras and, you know, there's, uh, whether it's businesses or police, we, we live in a society where, uh, like it or not, there's a ton more sensors. And that means, uh, you know, it's, it's much harder, harder for evildoers or, or bad actors to get away with things. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, one of the things I picked up from your book, and I want to make sure that folks have information about this, is there's a line that I pulled right out of, out of the book. And I'm going to read it, and then let's talk about it. It's this. Uh, <clears throat> killing that we today consider acceptable and lawful is precisely the kind of killing we can be rid of, and sooner than you might think, once we have the right technology to make it obsolete. Now, I hung out to that statement, but there are many, many more uh, in the end of killing that we could talk about. But that one in particular, I was interested in saying, look, you are, you know, a visionary in the technology world. You're a visionary in this world. A bold statement, which means you must have a bold solution. So let's get to that. Well, yeah, that was part of the reason for writing the book. So let me give you the the simple analogy Mm -hmm. that, that got me started in this space. Uh, after that businessman killed my two friends, he actually went to jail and is spending his life in prison. And I realized, wow, like that's a triple tragedy. He killed two people. And then clearly, you know, uh, he didn't like the outcome either. It was not good for him. And for me, I just sort of realized, you know, as a science fiction fan, it's not that hard to imagine weapons like Captain Kirk's phaser from Star Trek. This guy who confronted my friends in a parking lot in an argument, if he had a phaser and he could have stunned these two guys and left, they'd be alive and Mm -hmm. he would be out of jail. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's really what we're talking about. And and I, the reason I wrote the book at this point in time is we're getting close enough that I believe in the next 10 years and I get to see what's happening in the research labs. I think within the next 10 years, we will be able to have non-lethal weapons that literally perform better, faster, stronger than a gun at stopping a threat, but without killing someone. And that is going to require just a complete change in how we think about weapons. Because everybody historically has always just sort of assumed, well, of course, the guns are top of the pyramid. Lethal force is the most effective force. And that's going to change. And I think it's going to make the world a much better place when we don't have to kill people to stop a threat. Well, and, you know, let's talk about this, too, from a number of different perspectives. I was watching a a town hall the other day on television, and I was watching a teacher address a senator, current senator, that was sitting at the front of the stage. And basically, she went through about 90 seconds of explaining the type of training she was getting. You know, the training that talks about the speed of a bullet, the training that talks about what you do if you're fired upon. And her question was this, when are we going to get back to training and teaching English and math? And I wonder if we are going to get back to that without a massively innovative uh, idea like what you're talking about. Well, I got to tell you, I'm a father of young children, and I am not a big fan of how they're handling school shootings today. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my six-year-old daughter came home from kindergarten crying and she said, daddy, is somebody going to come to a, my school with a gun and shoot me? And I said, geez, like what makes you bring up that question? And, and of course she had had one of these uh, shelter in place drills in school. Like this is a great example of well-intentioned policy that just has a terrible outcome. We're traumatizing all of our nation's children by putting them through these drills. And these drills, they didn't give her any life skill. Her chance of surviving if a shooter shows up at school did not change one iota. Uh, And yet we're terrorizing all the kids. I would prefer they just don't even talk to our kids about school shooters. 
uh, unless you have something reasonable to say, but like putting the fear into them. And then the proposed solution was like, basically go hide under your desk or hide, you know, in the backpacks at the back of the classroom. Uh, I was a bit incensed. Now, uh, of course, I'm passionate about doing something uh, with technology to be mm-hmm. able to engage those those shooters. But I think, you know, what we're doing today is is just it's traumatizing kids with no benefit. Yeah. And, you know, let's talk about what it is we are talking about. One of the things that you mentioned in the book is policing without killing by 2030. Now, like I come from a family, uh, my uncle was chief of police in New Jersey. So quite familiar with, you, you know, let's just say having police people in our family. But one of the things that I'm not really familiar with is how absolutely daunting it is for all of them to know actually what to do. And, you know, I say that with a lot of compassion because I'm not sure that what we're doing to train our our police force and our military, I'm not sure we're there. And so is there a combination of training and policing without killing that you talk about by 2030? Is there a part of this that we can get going on now? And let's talk about your strategy and what you see in this. Yeah, so 100%, you know, I think the training that police go through, it it needs to be updated. Um, You know, there's, they basically have these big simulators which cost several hundred thousand dollars. It's like a big video game that they go into and they're, they're practicing these shoot, don't shoot scenarios. And because these machines are so expensive, like when you put a cop in there, most of the time it's going to be the shoot scenario, right? It, it, it's sort of you know expensive to send them in the machine and then you just put them through a bunch of things where they don't practice handling their weapons. Um, so we see one of the downsides to that is that we might be overtraining them to see situations as a time they need to shoot their weapon. So part of the way we're approaching this, we, we've just launched a series of training uh, materials using virtual reality. So it's a $200 headset. It doesn't require a full room or a big setup. And we can use VR to put the police, these officers into different scenarios. Um, and because of the lower cost, we can do higher frequency training. And in particular, because it's so immersive, one thing we know about virtual reality is it really can create a sense of empathy between people. That's one of the reasons like the Syrian refugee agencies use VR to try to build sympathy for what the Syrian refugees have gone through. What we're doing is we'll put the police officers through training. We have uh, two, two versions, really one for autism and one for schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And we have a third one uh, that we're working on now. And, and what this is designed to do is teach these officers, hey, when you, when you see somebody who's acting like this, you know, you may not want to point your gun at them and, and use more traditional old school police tactics, like point a flashlight and a gun at them and yell at them, tell them to drop the knife. If that's a schizophrenic, you might actually be triggering their fear and triggering them to become more violent. Uh, and, and the way we help teach them that, so we put them through the video once, uh, through the experience once as the cop, and then we have them switch roles. We have them go through the same experience, but next time they're the schizophrenic. And so now we're showing them what it's like. Hey, if you're hearing voices in your head and you're seeing hallucinations, and then here comes, you know, Johnny aggressive cop pointing a gun, a flashlight at you and yelling at you. And then we replay it, showing them 
what it's like when an officer is, is using more calm tones and, and interacting in a different paradigm. And we think it's that sort of experiential learning that's going to help them when they're out in the field and they see somebody, oh, hey, that looks like, yeah, that looks like that, that experience I had. You know, maybe this is one of those where yelling at him louder is not mm-hmm. going to get the outcome that I want. Maybe this is one where I'm going to try these other tactics. Yeah, I, I, I look, you are in so many ways, you're the person that we could really thank for uh, the word taser and the idea of taser in pretty much almost every movie you watch now that has anything to do with anything about this, right? <laughs> Here's my question. I'd love to know the website people can go to. What's your next taser? What's your next taser? <laughs> so, okay, uh, only so if you can share that. Was, yeah, only if you could share it, not yeah. top well, secret. I'll tell you, <laughs> I, I can tell you the name. The na- the, so we just launched Taser 7. Our next one will be Taser 8. We've gone to a very simple naming program. So it'll be the eighth generation of the Taser. Uh, it'll probably come out in about four years. And we're working on it hard right now. And that is going to get us pretty close to it will be pretty competitive with a police pistol in terms of it will, it will have more than uh, more than two shots and it'll really penetrate clothing very effectively. So it's the next major step toward our mission of making the bullet obsolete. So is it safe to say we're looking at the taser becoming the phaser? Yes. Okay. No, it's not going to be exactly like you saw on Star Trek, but I I think we will be the ones who create that capacity. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, one of the things we've learned from that and all the Star Trek movies, Rick, is that it was acceptable to the public. It was really accept- it was an acceptable phenomenon that they researched ad nauseum to really see what would be a weapon that would be accept- acceptable to the-, the public. Remember where we were when we did Star Trek, right? We weren't where we are now. You know, anything that was other than a PG-13 wasn't going to make it. And so I congratulate you for everything. And I really look forward to what's to come. What's the best website? And thank you for doing this. Uh, Best website to learn more is endofkilling.com or people can just get the book on Amazon, End of Killing. Thank you so much. I know you've got a lot of interviews. Thank you for your time. This has been great. Thank you. All right, everybody. We're going to stay in touch with Rick because I can't wait to hear. Let's take a short break. We'll be right back. Did you know that all of the shows on the Transformation Radio Network are available as podcasts to stream or download? Really? Check us out. Go to transformationradio.fm. We have business shows, spiritual shows, energy healing shows, and pretty much everything in between. Something for everyone guaranteed to inspire, educate, and transform. We are transforming the world one listener at a time. that moment when you realize you've mastered your wellness or that you will never fall off the roller coaster of life? Well, yeah, me either. But I still ride unicorn. I will teach you how to become a mindset master. You will learn how your habits and behavior affect the success of your nutrition and exercise, relationships, organization, and so much more. Motivation doesn't arrive in an email, so stop waiting for it. You have to take action, then motivation follows. I am Coach Peggy Well. Get out of your comfort zone and recognize the simple truth. We aren't that special. We all have crap to deal with, and we all have a lot more in common than not. I want to spark you into action. We will learn, love, and laugh together. 
So join me every first and third Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific for Coach Couch and Coffee Radio, where you will learn that being happy and healthy is way more than carrot sticks and squats. I'll talk to you later. Hey, everybody. Welcome. It's so great to have you tune us in and turn us on. Listen, here's the thing. When we started these good news segments, we didn't know that we would be providing you with the most incredible information that could save your life. Today is one of those days. Today is one of those days. What happens? What happens if you or a loved one or what appears to be them suffering right in the middle of a stroke? Now, many of you have heard us do a lot of shows on this before, but what can we know? At just 30 years old, a doctor's wife describes her ordeal, an amazing survival from a stroke, thanks to what? Her husband's quick response. Joining me here today, uh, Dr. Adam Barnathan. And of course, we have somebody here that's going to be up close and personal. Laura Bar- uh, Barnathan joining me here today. Both of you look. I don't think we could say enough about your ordeal or what you've experienced, but I want to ask you this question. Here we are. I said you were 30. We have a whole new game that we have to understand about strokes, don't we? Do you want to start, doctor? Yeah, so it's a whole new game, like you said, in in the stroke world. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, where we are in stroke is where we were with heart attacks in the 90s. It's a revolution going on. Um, in a good way. And uh, a lot of the treatments now are really uh, aimed at early detection and early treatment. And uh, in Lauren's case, you know, saved her life. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to go to you, Lauren, for a minute. Um, Did you know this was happening when it was happening? I mean, look, you're kind of like what we talk about. You go to the gym, you think you're in great shape. So what were you thinking? I wasn't really thinking anything. Actually, at the time, I was more upset with my husband for calling 911 because (laughs) I didn't think anything was wrong, to be perfectly honest. Um, And that's what happens with a lot of people that are experiencing stroke. Your body goes into this um, protection mode, and you don't realize that these things are happening. And so I really didn't realize that it was happening until the next day. It kind of all sat in. But, um, yeah, I did not know. And that's been the problem. That's why that's kind of catalysted our mission to try to make people aware of Mm -hmm. the signs and symptoms of stroke for those that are not able to identify it themselves. And I think this is so important because I don't know that we ever thought we would be at the day, doctor, where we would be saying 30 year old and the word stroke in the same sentence. I, I just don't think we ever thought we'd be there. What have we learned about this? And give us an update on the world that is now encompassing so many people. Yeah, so what we learned is really, uh, we've learned an awareness that stroke could hit at any age. It doesn't choose gender, it doesn't choose age, it doesn't choose race. Anyone could have a stroke. Um, there are different reasons people have strokes, but anyone could have a stroke. Uh, I think part of the kind of revolution going on is now we're thinking about young people uh, having a stroke, which is overall a positive thing because we're becoming increasingly aware as doctors as a medical community that this is something that we need to recognize and we need to treat. Well, and, uh, look, that's overall a good thing. Well, here you are, right? You're a physician in emergency medicine, right? I mean, that's just a very broad brush. Uh, dis- right. I mean, right. that, that we say those things and it's like, okay, there's so much more to that. Um, but what, what is it about your training, if I might ask, that help you recognize it 
Or was it a combination of, yeah, I learned about that. And by the way, intuitively, I know what that's, I know what's going on. Yeah. In my case, it was a little combination of both. I've seen it so many times that I, I instantly recognize the pattern, but the reassuring thing is that you don't even have to be a doctor. You don't have to be a medical professional. You don't have to even know the first thing you could have failed high school biology, all those things. And you could still recognize a stroke. Mm-hmm. Um, so the important thing that we preach is we, we, in the emergency department, we always say, keep it simple. Um, and that's really true for stroke. Keep it simple. That's yep. why we use mnemonics. We preach mnemonics because if you recognize that you don't have to make the diagnosis, you just have to know, all I have to do is dial three numbers, 911. And my job is your job is done. That's all I did. Um, and there was nothing special about that. Uh, you know, me being a doctor didn't change anything about me just saying I need to dial 911. Yeah, I'll tell you what is different about it. And I think Lauren's going to talk to this right now. Here's what's different about it. I don't know about you, but I had a situation yesterday where one of my table tennis buddies fell very hard. And the first thing they say is, I'm okay. I'm okay. Right? Six people Mm -hmm. try to lift them up. And I'm like, no, don't move her. Isn't Mm -hmm. this really the deal? Because I can imagine Laura saying, oh, honey, no, please. What are you doing? You're calling Mm -hmm. 911. And, you know, at that point, if you weren't a doctor, the game would be over. They wouldn't call. Let's talk about, Mm -hmm. if we could go through this, the symptoms. And regardless of what somebody says to you, please dial the phone, right? Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, we we want people to overreact. Um, As a patient that experienced it myself, I was underreacting. And my husband, not that he overreacted, but people think they're going to go to the emergency room and they're going to be ridiculed or feel silly for overreacting to something. But in reality, it could be one of the signs and symptoms of stroke. All right. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, doctor. I apologize. Go ahead. Oh, just piggybacking on what Lauren said, uh, you know, that quick decision just to make that call and, and not care about if people think it's ridiculous or not and say, mm-hmm. you know, we have to do this. This is the right thing to do. All right. Let's go through some of the signs. But before we do that, because I, I know what happens every time we do this, we sort of run out of our 10 minutes or so. How about a website? How can people find out more? Strokeawareness.com has the 10 signs and symptoms as well as resources for potential stroke survivors and their loved ones. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. Let's go to it. Let's give people some signs because I know for me, um, part of what I experienced, some people called it a stroke, other people didn't. Um, but it was the, the kind of thing where you have this momentary lapse where you don't remember much and you end up on the floor, but let's go through the signs that everybody right now need to be aware of. Go ahead. So the signs we use and the mnemonic we use is BFAST, and that, um, that stands for balance. So any, and this is all regarding sudden onset symptoms. Mm-hmm. So any loss of balance that's sudden or new should mm-hmm. concern, uh, you know, a caregiver or a loved one. Uh, visual deficits in one side of your vision or another. Is that like dizziness? Or, uh, is that the same as dizzy? Yeah, so sudden okay. onset dizziness where you can't walk a straight line mm-hmm. and somebody's asking you if you had too many cocktails at lunch, but mm-hmm. you didn't. That could be a sign. Um, facial droop could be a sign. Uh, arm weakness, of course, and leg weakness. And that's really on one side of the body. And then, of course, speech, the uh, gargled or slurred speech we hear about um, and Lauren had. Um, and then T is for time. So time to recognition being the most important thing you could do. Mm. 
Lauren, I, I want to ask you a question. Here you are. This event happened to you. I want to ask you, what was it like the day after? Do you know what I mean by the day after? <laughs> I, oh, don't liter- I, yeah. I don't mean literally the day after, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I know. And literally the day after yeah. <laughs> um, was when it did all hit me. I remember I called a coworker who I carpooled to work with and I, I was just crying. I said, I can't come into work today. I had a stroke and I was so upset about not going into work. <laughs> but um, And then kind of from there on afterwards, um, the physical recovery was sort of what I expected being in the healthcare field. I kind of knew what I was up against and I really didn't take into consideration the whole mental aspect of my recovery. Um, The physical recovery looked like getting, like small triumphs, getting from my bed to the chair, walking a block, walking down the hallway to Mm -hmm. eventually, I ended up running a half marathon. And while all those are great triumphs and victories, um, it was really the emotional toll that it took on both Adam and I um, that was the biggest surprise and probably the biggest hurdle to get over. Yeah. And, you know, I'm so there's a reason I ask you that, because I, I actually work with women in particular who experience a health challenge on exactly that, mm-hmm. the psychological mm-hmm. aspects of it, because yeah. in the end, even though there's so much advanced technologies like doctor you're talking about, there is an emotional, a psychological, a mental and some people say a spiritual side to recovery. Right. And so I hope you are a spokesperson for those people that don't realize that equally those are important, Lauren, right? I agree completely. Mm. We're just going to continue spreading the word. Where are you today? Last question. Where are you today? How how are you feeling today? Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I'm also very blonde, as you can tell. (laughs) That was pretty true. Oh, I just got my hair done. I just, you can't see me because they they didn't do video. But if you saw me, my hair is blonde white. And people are like, dude, you know, really, your age, do you really have gray hair? I said, no, I just like the blonde color. So go ahead. Uh, no, and I'm a better person than I was before my stroke, and I'm continuing to grow each and every day because of it. So mm-hmm. I'm in a great place. Thank you for asking. Thank you. Any last words, doctor, that you want to give here? I know this is a short interview. Uh, no, I just want people to go to strokeawareness.com, make sure that they know the signs and symptoms and to pick up the phone, dial 911, and it's okay to overreact. That's the real message. Yeah, and I've got a message, and I hope it's in line with you both. Stroke has no distinction to age. The old view of who is going to have a stroke, when they're going to have a stroke, what it looks like for a person that should or should not have a stroke. This is a new game. Thank you both for joining me here today. Thanks, Dr. Pat. Thank you. Okay, lots more to come on this. We're going to be talking about it in another segment. We'll be right back. Wow. Hey, everyone. Welcome. Uh, Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. This is Talk Radio to Thrive By. I'm telling you, I got to pinch myself some days because when each of us gets called to do something that we so not thought was in our wheelhouse to do for a purpose that's so much greater than us, we get to show up and shine. If you would like to show up and shine on the Dr. Pat Show as a co-host or sponsor, send us an email to inspire at thedrpatshow.com. Do you want the knowledge and wisdom to understand where spirituality, science, and psychology intersect? Then join the Karmic Path Radio Show with Tina and Laura on TransformationTalkRadio.com, Thursdays at 4 p.m. Pacific. Follow this charmingly, disarmingly dynamic duo as they explore how psychic ability, spirituality, and karmic law tie together. For more information on Tina, Laura, and their groundbreaking work, 
visit thekarmicpath.com. Okay, look, everybody, look, you all have been with me for over 15 years. We've gone through the good, the bad, the ugly, the price of gold, the bottom of the market falling out, but you're still here. So what is it that we did in the middle of all of that crazy? What did we do as a company? Well, that's not what this interview is about, but it's kind of about that. And, you know, the question is, are we looking at the long ball or are we looking at to hand it off and run the short run? The bottom line to all of this is we need to look at what we're investing in like anything else. You need to do a checkup, a tune up and then fire it up. Joining me here today is Gene Goldman, Chief Investment Officer and Director of Research at Cetera Investment Management. And the bottom line for today is let's talk money. Great to have you here, Gene. Hey, Dr. Pat. My pleasure. Thank you for letting me be on your show. Thank yeah. you so much. Okay. So, you know, here's the deal with this. Um, we went through, just like everybody else, here we are, independent radio hosts. We're heard in about 160 countries all over the world. We're on cable television, the whole thing. But when the bottom fell, that fell out. We decided to go from the Dr. Pat show and we started a network. So we expanded. But the reason we did that is because of the topic today. It is the idea of looking at and doing a checkup. And that is something we don't do because money, and I got to tell you, money is one of the hottest issues, so much so if you go to our website, you'll see we're launching the Wealth Network in about a month. But there are things we have to know, and I want you to take it away because let's do a check-in, a check-up, a tune-up, and get the engine roaring. <laughs> <laughs> that, that sounds good. I think you look at right now, things are great. In, in terms of we are in the longest economic expansion since 1854. And some people say longest since the birth of our nation. I know the data is a little spotty, but basically longest expansion ever. And the bull market, stock market, longest bull market ever. Things are going really good. But the problem is, is that when things are going good, you got to always look around your shoulder. You got to look what's going on. And this is why we're stressing to you and stressing to your listeners, do a portfolio checkup because volatility is going to pick up. It is picking up and markets could change in a dime pretty fast. So our portfolio checkup is three simple things. Number one, review your long-term investment objectives. You know, if you're a 60-40 investor, so 60% stocks, 40% bonds, today, coming out of the Great Recession, today, you're now about 83% stocks, 17% bonds. So by doing nothing, you've increased your investment objective, you've increased your risk. Number two, diversify your equity exposure. We all love growth stocks. Growth stocks are great. Technology companies, it sounds so exciting. But the problem is, is that growth has gotten a little ahead of itself. Growth up year to it's up about 20%. The value stocks, good, safe value companies are up about 10%. Look at value stocks. Look at international stocks. Look at even gold. Look at you reducing your equity risk. Number three, 
this is probably the most important of all three, is fixed income. So your bond exposure, your bond is your safe money. It's your money that if things aren't going right, it'll be the safe exposure. But the problem is, is that we've all been buying with yields so low. We've been buying this aggressive fixed income exposure, but now this aggressive fixed income exposure, like high yield bonds, for example, they look and they feel like stocks. So if the markets go down, the safe money is not going to act as a counterbalance. And you could see your mark, your account, your, your portfolio fall even further. So again, the three portfolio checkups. So when we do a checkup, we're doing a checkup for a reason. Uh, and let's talk about a checkup, right? Uh, mm-hmm. you, you take your car in, you get a checkup. You go to the doctor, you get a checkup. Um, and what are you looking for in the checkup? Because this is the most important thing. The reason that people, and really there is a psychology, by the way, this is actually what I like to study, the psychology of money. And there is a psychology to this. And what happens sometimes with us is, Gene, we get into the place of not knowing because we don't have anybody to talk with. You, as a financial advisor, you lay out a platform for people to have a safe space to come in and let's just say chit chat. That's got to be the number one thing. That's got to be the thing that where people say, yeah, I'm going to call Gene right now because I don't even know what I don't know about this. And you know, a little checkup and how about a little course correction? Because that's what we may be talking about. I'm not saying we are. Dr. Pat, exactly. Think about this. I went to my doctor a couple weeks ago. First thing I did, I sat down with my doctor um, and he said, listen, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Any, any changes in your, in your history? Any changes in your medical history? He's sitting there and he's asking me those questions. The same thing when you go mm-hmm. and sit down, sit down with your financial advisor, mm-hmm. you know, has anything changed in your life? Do you have, any, have you had another child? Have, do you want to retire early? Do you want to start your own? Whatever. That's very important because the financial advisor can take that information and tweak and alter your portfolio. That's number one. Number two is when you sit down with your advisor, go through each investment and ask your advisor, why do I own this? Why do I own that security? What is this doing? Is this helping my portfolio? Why, does this, why do I own this security in my portfolio? You know what I love about talking to you? Uh, I love that you are basically an engineer that decided to be uh, uh, to hold a Series 7 and then 63 under securities registrations. Because I, believe me, I worked at Bell Labs. So I totally get what engineers can do. And I don't mean to put you in that box, but I did notice that. I did notice that about you. And there's something to be said about that. Because here we are in one of the, what I think, most progressive high-tech uh, futures that we have been looking at, right? And I say a high tech future. I mean, I got to tell you, even as a broadcasting network, we're creating an artificial intelligence game that we're going to crowdfund about so that we could educate people about Lyme disease. So here's my question for you You understand the market, you're trained. What is the greatest challenge, Gene, that you see? and getting people to the table to sit down with you. Because I think once they sit down with you, your, uh, your area of expertise, your, let's just call it bedside manner, uh, and the people like you, the game's over. They're going to get some help. But how do you get them to the table? That's a great question. And going to your AI point, I love AI. I think 
AI, artificial intelligence is mm-hmm. so important. One thing that I've said before is that artificial intelligence is like electricity of the 1890s. Yeah. It's going to be big. We just don't know how big it's going to be. It's going to be huge. And you're seeing so many ramifications. So it's your question of like, of, of getting in, sitting down and, you know, um, work, working with an advisor. It's, you know, it's basically, you have to understand like the markets, the, the, the biggest are you know, the, the concern is that the markets for the last nine years, 10 years, have been basically going up. You know, we had some, we had a little bit of weakness in the fourth quarter last year. We had some weakness in the summer of 2011. But in essence, markets have gone up. You know, the market's up about 400% since the end of the Great Recession. So it's been very easy to invest. You put money in and theoretically it keeps going higher. Things are changing. Volatility is picking up. Daily, we see headlines of this unexpected news like, tweets like news from china news from europe news new, the inverted yield curve all that stuff all this stuff is really causing uncertainty and so again the last 10 years have been fairly easy to invest things are changing this is where you need to sit with your advisor to say what does that yield curve inverted yield curve mean do i need to be worried do i need to change my investments yeah i mean where do you think we put our our, our effort of fear let me i don't know how to say it another way but fear plays a big role in a number of things and what i mean by that gene is it plays a big role in that some people from a fear perspective like i gotta invest i gotta invest i gotta invest right from a different perspective you know, they are afraid to ask questions, right? So there's so many layers to this when we're talking about money and future. See, if you take money separately and then you take future separately, you you kind of could, you can stand a chance. But the business that you're in, you almost have to have a degree in psychology along with that engineering degree. So here's my question. One, let's give out a website. But two, is there something that people can do to take responsibility on their own about the market? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think to take responsibility on your own for the market, read, yeah. understand. So, so even, okay, so even when I go, I'm gonna, a little secret about me, yeah. even before I go and sit down with my doctor, I'm going to go and I'm going to go on online. I'll check out WebMD. If I'm feeling a pain or an issue, I'm going to go and review that. I'm going to go through and say, hey, Here's some of my symptoms. Let me let me talk to my doctor to see if that makes sense. The same thing when you sit down with your advisor is really, you know, learn and understand, read, you know, take the opportunity to read. You know, it could be as simply as looking at, you know, any of the market periodicals or looking at a market website. Just be understand what this means because you have those questions. It shows you that you are an engaged client when you meet with your advisor that you have the right question and your advisor will work with you. So it's, it's almost, again, it's almost like going in. Imagine if I sat down with my doctor and he's like, how are you feeling? I'm like, I don't know. I'm feeling okay. I feel, I feel whatever. No, if I have, I should have a list of things that I've been worried about. Like I'm getting older, you know, I'm not, I feel like a weird pain in my knee. I have a whole checklist. You should have that checklist when you go and sit down with your advisor, be prepared, be engaged and do your research beforehand. Yeah, I know you've got to run off. I know you're, you, you've got a ton of these interviews you're doing. Look, uh, website again, and most importantly for me, there is a personal aspect of this. I would love to know your personal message for people. Sure. The website, first of all, is satera.com. Mm-hmm. So it's C-E-T-E-R-A.com. 
It's, we have 8,000 advisors all across the country, so you can mm-hmm. access information there. And then for our market perspectives on Twitter, it's Cetera, C-E-T-E-R-A-I-M, like investment management. And my words of wisdom is, listen, listen, the stock market has been up 29 out of the last 39 years. Yeah. Generally, it's been an upwardly biased market. That's good news, right? Yeah. But in those, in those positive years, those 29 positive years, the average intra-year loss is negative 14.5%. Mm. So this means while stocks are moving higher, they are volatile. They do fluctuate. Portfolios and markets fluctuate. And we've been blessed with this amazing time of, of low volatility, of markets moving higher slowly. Expect volatility. Do your research, do your analysis, have your checklist, go down and sit with your advisor and say, what should we do if we have a recession? What should we do if mm-hmm. the trade war does not get resolved? What should we do if, if, if have that ready? Yeah. And just like you said, I wanted to say this, just like when you take your car in, sometimes mm-hmm. you've got to change the oil. Same thing with the financial uh, uh, framework. Sometimes you may have to make a change, but don't do it on your own. Get some expertise, satira.com. Thank you, Gene. Thanks so much for today. Thank you, Dr. Pat. All right, everybody, a short break. We'll be right back. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show, talk radio to thrive by. I am so thrilled to be talking to all of you. We have got talk radio for all of us. Are you ready and willing and able to accept all of the abundance you can muster up in your life? Check us out at drpatcho.com, transformationtalkradio.com, transformationradio.fm. Oh, my goodness. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our good news segment. Um, Look, I know that many of us look for solutions, but we also look for innovation. You know, what is happening today with the state of affairs for health and who are the innovators? Dr. Marla Dubinsky is joining me here today, Professor of Pediatrics and Medicine, Chief of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition, Co-Director of the Susan and Leonard Feinstein IBD Center, and joining me here today to talk about IBD. You're going to find out what that means. But more importantly, you know, what is the impact on women? You know, most of the times we don't really call women and bring women to the forefront of talking about many of the kinds of diseases or illnesses or effects that we have out there. But that's what this is about. Doctor, it's great to have you. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me today. Uh, uh, you know, let, let me just start with a question for you. Um, did a very brief introduction. I could probably spend the entire segment time talking about what you've done in the world around this, your credentials, your research, every, every and all of the above. But here's the question. For you personally, how has this become a passion and purpose to educate people? Thank you for asking that question because it really has become sort of my passion project. Um, I, Because of my work that I did uh, earlier on in my career looking at the safety of a lot of the medications that we were using during pregnancy when these new therapeutics started to come out, there wasn't a lot of information around it. And sort of as my interest grew in trying to optimize the reproductive health and women's issues around uh, women with inflammatory bowel disease, it really became a passion for my for me when I saw how much information is missing out there and how confusing different opinions 
uh, are to patients so that it really leads to these misconceptions and them walking away thinking they may never have been able to get pregnant. And being able to tell a female patient when they come to you to seek counseling on whether or not the medications are safe or whether or not how quickly they can start trying to get pregnant and you're able to say to them, all good, time for you to get pregnant, this relief and this emotional sort of connection that you make is really hard to replicate with a lot of other things we do in, in the field. So, you know, from your perspective, and, and this is one of the things that's so important to be talking about, um, we worry because we don't have information and we worry about whether or not what we're putting in our bodies um, and how they're going to affect us. And especially if we're talking about women who are carrying a child, right? Pregnant women. Um, and there are things that they may or may not know. But I'll tell you, their go-to right away is, okay, I can't really do this. I can't really take medication. Okay, I can't. You're right. You're right. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yep. there's this whole new world that happens when it's like you say, I'm pregnant. It's like the whole thing changes, right? But w this is about educating and informing, right? Um, where's the confusion around medications, whether they're safe or not? Can you can you help us with that? Yeah, I mean, part of the the issue around are they safe or not comes from the fact that all the information that patients have is really based on what's in the drug label, you know, and oh, yeah. what they hear on TV. Yeah. yeah. So any sort of information, which obviously these medications are not tested in women when they're originally brought to the market, in women, if, if you get pregnant during a trial, you have to drop out of the trial. So really the information we get regarding the use of these medications comes from real-world clinical practice. And that takes a long time to accumulate enough data to feel confident enough to be able to put it out there. The beautiful thing about the IBD Parenthood Project um, is the, uh, the fact that it's basically presenting women with IBD with medical facts about IBD and pregnancy, about the safety of our therapies, about the fact that the harm to the baby is more untreated inflammation in the body, as well as the harm to the baby is not being well managed. Because what we need to explain to moms is babies are going to be great as long as you feel good. And that relationship of trying to tie in the importance of staying on your medication during pregnancy to help the baby be healthier does require somewhat of a mind frame shift that even sometimes the physicians that are managing these patients don't quite have enough data or rely on preconception and pregnancy planning clinics like what we have in Mount Sinai or some of my colleagues have in different parts of the country. And so from your perspective, what is the most, I know these are short interviews, right? I mean, it's like you and I are hurrying to get all this information in. Um, let's stop for a moment and make sure, one, people have uh, information. What is the best website? And then I want to talk with you about what are your top three things that women should know. But website first. Let's do that, doctor. So the IBD Parenthood Project and all the information, the best place to get the most accurate, up-to-date information from really thought leaders in this space is www.ibdparenthoodproject.org. This is information that will arm patients with data that they need to bring to their physician because it's not to assume that mm -hmm. the physician they're seeing 
is up on the latest and greatest safety and information around fertility, for example. So the fact that we have a resource available that was really um, a big uh, creative work done by the our society, the American mm-hmm. Gastroenterology Association and other societies, and folks really put all of us in one room to come up with the most important information patients and caregivers should know. So that's the where can I find, yeah. you know, my information. Yeah. There I loved what you just said. I love what you just said. Let me tell you why. I love it. I have done so many of these interviews, and I think you've got to be the first doctor that I've interviewed in these interviews that have said, this is information that you, the patient, need to take to your doctor and perhaps inform them that there might be something out there they don't know. I mean, I don't know whether you know that, but that right there, what you just said, that is golden. It is key. Yeah, you know, I sort of decided in my passion around women and educating everybody around it is we need to have a big focus on this. And it doesn't mean just because 50% of IV patients are women means that everybody who manages these patients is up on the latest and greatest information. So my philosophy was, and so with partnering with the AGA, is to go to the patient. And we need to empower them with information that's going to help them make the right decisions. And I think that really is superb in our ability to empower them. So when we think about empowerment, we sort of say, going back to your question about what are like three things I want patients to know. One, I want them to know that IBD itself in no way will impact their ability to have a healthy pregnancy. The key to that piece is being controlled with your medications and going off your medications is counterintuitive to what the goals of them having a successful pregnancy are because there's a lot of emerging evidence to say that control of inflammation is sort of king. You know, it is what you or queen, I suppose. <laughs> <in this> scenario, <laughs> I like the that. Idea <laughs> that you need to, you know, really focus on if I am good, my baby will be good. And that really needs to be the focus of the entire care team And the third piece is that the medications that we're using in this age group are safe, and that's why we're using them to control the inflammation, to feed back to the concept that they will have a very successful pregnancy, and the baby will get exactly what it needs if we can keep the mom healthy. Wow. I uh, Thank you for this. The other thing is there is, uh, I mean, look, it is important to be concerned. It is important if you are a, a woman who has just discovered you're pregnant and also has IBD. It is important for you to be asking those questions. But what you said, uh, Dr. Dubinsky, is so important because information and knowledge is so important. Now, I want to ask you a question. Um there are misconceptions, which we just talked about, right? And I, and I even have heard in some cases that, you know, pregnancy produces, uh, what is it, produces the, the hormone, uh, uh, what is it, HCG, and sometimes HCG, yeah, and sometimes what that yeah. can do is it can ward off inflammation. I know in uh, rheumatology, in, in rheumatoid arthritis, you know, women that get pregnant, all of a sudden their symptoms go away. So there are a lot of factors involved here that could affect the way a woman might feel or the way her body changes. What's the best advice that you could give in these last uh, minutes we have left? And, and I've got to ask you then a follow-up question, and that is, if you bring this information to your doctor and your doctor doesn't listen, 
we have to encourage women to find a doctor that does, right? That is that is sort of the message at the end of every, you know, visit that I have. Yeah. And if they'll come and they'll say, well, I didn't have this information and is it too late? Did I miss my window of opportunity? I'm older. You know, there's a lot of regret and fear yeah. um, that goes into and a lot of bravery when I see these women who are sort of saying, you know, I'm ready now and I'm ready to do anything I need to do to get pregnant yeah. I'm now in a good relationship. You know, and being able to have the ability to tell them that it's not too late and that we're going to get you pregnant is, again, goes back to sort of why I do all of this is to say to them, whatever you want to be, you know, to happen, we will make it happen. We are here for you. I think encouraging them to seek an expertise, go to the resources such as the Parenthood Project, find out who is doing this kind of research, who is studying this, who is the person who can give me the best information, and keep going until you find that information. Uh, I think that's that's super uh, important. Even at Sinai, I have plenty of my colleagues who are amazing IBD experts, but they say, during those 10 months, I want you to go see Marla because she's going to keep you well during mm-hmm. that time mm-hmm. and because she's an expert in it. So even the world's experts know that pregnancy requires sort of this added level of knowledge that they just want some double-checking to make sure that they're doing the best they can for their patients. So that's yeah. really important. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I would say that, mm-hmm. you know, it's important for them to feel good about their decision-making and they can seek the care that they need and the resources they need. Yeah. And I, I really think that what you're talking about is so important because there are so many aspects of this, right? You know, in the field that I'm in, the psychology, even just the psychology of pregnancy now in the world we live in takes on a whole new meaning. So there are so many factors, but I love what you're doing because you are getting the word out there. And part of this is what the show is about and the network. You know, when I started Transformation Talk Radio, it was exactly for the reason that you just stated. We must help people make informed, educated, and conscious decisions. And I I really thank you for that. One last thing, if you don't mind, please give us the website again. And then I want to ask you, what is your personal message, Dr. Dubinsky? What would you like to leave us with today? Okay, so I'll just, um, the website again is www.ibdparenthoodproject.org. And you'll be able to see some toolkits and really get information on surgery and all sorts of information that's going to help patients. So in terms of what I, what I leave the um, patients with is the idea that IBD will not impact whatever your dreams and aspirations are. And therefore, if having a child is what you want to pursue with IBD, we will not let IBD stand in its way. You just need to be empowered with the right information to be able to make the right decisions and seek the best care possible. Wow. Thank you so very much. Uh, Again, website, one last time. www.ibdparenthoodproject.org. All right. Thank you so very much, Dr. Dubinsky, everybody. I'm telling you, go to the website, check it out, pass the information on. Thank you so much for all you're doing. Thank you. All right, let's take a short break, everybody. We'll be right back. 